You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from RAND. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's January 19th. Some employers are hesitant to hire people with criminal records for fear they will reoffend. But a growing body of RAND research counters this common misperception. Our findings show that most people with a criminal record have just one conviction. In fact, about 75% of people with a first conviction don't get a second conviction within 10 years. Evidence also shows that the type of crime committed is not a reliable predictor of future offenses. By contrast, age and number of convictions are reliable predictors. As people age, family responsibilities and other factors tend to crowd out criminal behavior. In other words, crime tends to be a young person's enterprise. And all things being equal, a greater number of prior convictions tends to indicate a greater future risk of reoffending, while a lower number suggests a lower risk. But the most reliable predictor is the amount of time that has passed since a person's last conviction. The likelihood of reoffending plummets as more years go by without a conviction. Employers who are leery of candidates with criminal histories might also be reassured by the overwhelming evidence that employers routinely hire people with records who go on to be good employees. In fact, more than 25% of workers in the active workforce have at least one prior conviction. Another consideration, even if workers don't have a criminal record, they still have a risk of conviction. This is especially true among younger workers. So, let's sum up the facts. Most people with a conviction have only one conviction. People with conviction records can be and are successful employees. And even people without records have a risk of conviction. If more employers consider all this and make more evidence-based hiring decisions, then it could be a triple win. Companies get the employees they need, people with criminal records get jobs, and society overall benefits. Last weekend, Taiwan elected the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, to a third consecutive term, elevating current Vice President Lai Ching-te, also known as William Lai, to the highest office. Lai's election suggests a continuation of the DPP's approach to defending Taiwan against Chinese military threats, which is focused on enhancing security and economic ties with the U.S., Japan, Southeast Asia, and like-minded democracies. In fact, Lai has already pledged to continue the island's current approach to relations across the Taiwan Strait. But with this third straight victory by the DPP, Rand's Raymond Kuo says that tensions between Taiwan and China will only get worse. Beijing will likely increase its coercive operations to reduce the readiness of Taiwan's military, demoralize the public, and isolate Taiwan internationally. Beijing will also continue to refuse to talk to a DPP government. This will halt Taiwanese efforts to manage the cross-strait relationship and increase the chances of miscommunication. It's worth noting, however, that the parliamentary vote in Taiwan's election was split, so no party has a majority. 
This could make Chinese coercion politically trickier, Kuo points out. That's because China can no longer point to a single political party in Taiwan for provoking its aggression. In other words, it will be much more difficult for Beijing to assign blame without a consolidated target. But on the other hand, a divided parliament could lead to thorny domestic political challenges for Taiwan, including a handcuffed incoming government. It's clear that Taiwan faces continued challenges, both within its own government and in the threats it faces from China, which will likely continue to mount. There has been a recent global resurgence of executive coups, also known as self-coups, in which existing leaders take extreme measures to eliminate other parts of the government or render them powerless. What explains this trend toward autocracy? According to Rand's Alexander Noyes, there are a range of factors at play, from the popularity of the incumbent to the character of the opposition response to the type of political system in place. International and regional factors also matter. In Gambia in 2017, a regional military intervention eventually forced the country's president from power when, after losing elections, he attacked the Electoral Commission and refused to leave office. This reversal would have been difficult, if not impossible, without coordinated action and pressure from outside powers. Of course, there are also lessons to be learned from the attempted executive coup that occurred on U.S. soil on January 6, 2021. While the U.S. withstood this attempt, American democracy isn't out of the woods yet, Noyes warns. A host of reforms are needed to strengthen independent checks and balances and lower the risk of future executive coups in America. A good place to start is revamping the Insurrection Act, which currently gives the president sweeping authority to deploy the military to quell domestic unrest in a way that could help facilitate another executive coup. Additionally, the U.S. should rapidly deploy all the legislative coup restrictions that currently apply to military coups abroad, including the suspension of economic and security assistance to other countries. Noyes stresses that the U.S. shouldn't shy away from acknowledging its struggles with democratic backsliding. And, while doing so, it should help other countries learn from its experience, helping nations foster the growth of strong, independent institutions that prevented the January 6th insurrection from ultimately succeeding. After all, the U.S. system bent, but did not break. Colleges across the United States have invested tens of millions of dollars in credential stacking programs, which allow students to earn a series of credentials over time that lead to a degree or certificate. These programs are designed for working adults who don't have the time or the money to get a college degree, and they often promise to help low-income students chart a path to the middle class. But do they deliver? A recent RAND study showed that low-income students are more likely to stack credentials than middle- and high-income students. Those low-income students who built up credentials over time sharply reduced the earnings gap with their more advantaged peers. In fact, more than 70% of the students in the study were making middle-income wages within six years. This data is promising, but there are caveats. The best outcomes were seen when students built up credentials, 
For example, earning a certificate and then stacking even more credentials for an associate's degree. On the other hand, if they simply collected credentials to earn a series of shorter-term certificates, then there was no meaningful increase in earnings. Further, stackable credentials are most valuable in certain fields, such as nursing and manufacturing. With more knowledge about what makes these programs effective, colleges can provide students with more upfront information about the value of different credentials and invest in programs that help more students succeed. We'll close today's episode with some insights from Rand's Alexandra Stark on the tense situation in Yemen. To start, here's a quick recap of the developing situation. Since mid-November, the Houthis, a rebel group that controls territory inhabited by 80% of Yemen's population, have been attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Alongside the UK, the US led retaliatory air and naval strikes on Houthi targets late last week. And over the last few days, there have been further Houthi missile attacks and subsequent rounds of US strikes. The U.S. also put the Houthis back on its specially designated global terrorist list. Writing before the initial U.S.-led military action last week, Rand's Alexandra Stark stressed the importance of diplomacy to fully address the Houthi threat. Like it or not, she said, the Houthis have linked their aggression to Israel's operations in Gaza and have won domestic and regional support for doing so. Finding a sustainable, long-term approach to both the war between Israel and Hamas, as well as to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general, will be critical to de-escalating tensions across the region and getting the Houthis to call off their attacks on commercial vessels. Quote, an approach that combines diplomacy with deterrence is the least bad way for the United States to deal with this intractable problem in the near term. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today, check out the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.